Um, it's great to be here. It's certainly not my first time uh, in Northern Ireland, and I hope not my last. Can I just check? Can, can you hear me at the back, first of all? Okay. Now, be, being a psychiatrist, you know, sometimes I, I want to, you know, drop my voice and speak a little more intimately before I tell you how much I'm charging you for this, you know. Um, and, and if I drop my voice, just put your hand up and that'll just raise me back, back up again, if, if you would. Um, a couple of disclaimers. We're, we're looking at a big topic uh, this afternoon, the sexual revolution. I, I, I want to stand back and look at the whole topic and give us a way of thinking about this great revolution that's upon us that I hope will get us started in thinking. So if you came along, you know, hoping to get all your questions answered, this is rather more about getting your getting your questions started and engaged with. So um, I hope you'll bear with me in that. I know as Christians we like, we like to get the answers sorted out, but there'll be somebody who's come, wanted all your questions about transgender answered. You're going to be disappointed. All the questions about same-sex attraction answered. Disappointed because we're just going to get started in looking at what the implications of some of these issues for us are. Now, we are battling the wind... Uh, some of you have got to try and see that screen from the back, and best of luck with that. And we're going to have all sorts of noises from the back, but let's just work together uh, to see how much of God we can hear uh, this afternoon as we turn to him, and as we also turn outwards to our culture to look at uh, what's going on there. At the end, I'll show you a slide, and that will have an address on it that you can Google where this lecture, you can just download it and read it. So if you just like to sit back, uh, you can read it when, when you get home. It's a bit longer. It's set out. Can you hear me at the back okay still? Yep. Um, and I'll also put there a list of resources, other reading that will have been referred to or pointed to in this seminar, uh, and you can look that up for yourself. It, it, I'll give you a website to go to, and you can just download those, um, those references there. Okay? So that's just setting up roughly where we're going. Actually, I've got notes. I never use notes uh, in seminars. Like tomorrow, I shall be much more wanting to walk around, chatting to people, talking about self-esteem. But this is such a big topic that, that, that I tend to go off-piste so easily with and get so carried away and passionate about that we will be here all afternoon unless I have some notes that I'm going to try my best uh, to stick to. And so bear with me in that, won't you? But let's have a look at our first slide, first of all. What's this film? The Magdalene Sisters, yep. And set in uh, the Republic of Ireland in the 1960s, the hit movie The Magdalene Sisters follows the fortunes of four women trapped under the brutal regime of the po-faced nuns running one of Ireland's infamous Magdalene Laundry Asylums. Named after Mary Magdalene, who some people believe to have been a repentant prostitute, hundreds, hundreds of these asylums for fallen women operated across Europe and North America for the best part of 200 years. And the shame of having an illegitimate child was what locked these women away 
where sometimes they were put to work in the laundries for years on end. And you'll know that sometimes their children were adopted away against their will or without their knowledge. Now, surprisingly, the last asylum for single mums in the Republic did not close until 1996. And I say surprisingly because 1996 was just 20 years ago. And uh, by then, a cultural revolution of sex and marriage was well underway. That's why it was surprising. Things were well underway. Changes were underway in our society. In fact, things were changing so fast that in just a few years' time, Ireland would become the first country in the world to legalise same-sex marriage by popular vote. In just, what, 16 years' time, after the last of these laundries closed. Over one-third of the country's births would soon be taking place outside of marriage. One-third, not enough places in the asylums for one-third of the population of mothers. In fact, in some parts of inner-city Belfast, over two-thirds of births are now taking place outside of marriage. Indeed, the old conventions of holy matrimony have been collapsing so fast around us that, in the words of one opinion columnist, who was protesting against the idea of uh, tax benefits for married couples, she said, why should I be asked to subsidise other people's weird lifestyle choices? So in just 20 years, marriage goes from being the great vision of the bond a human bond that nature has endowed for the enjoyment of sex and with the potential to create and nurture children. The bond we call marriage, it's gone from, from something that nature gave that's the norm to a weird lifestyle choice. It's staggering. Now, look around you, friends, at our culture. Today, sex outside of marriage, I mean, it's just normal, isn't it? Um, young Christians who want to get married today in their early 20s, aren't they seen as a bit weird? Irresponsible? I've heard a couple of young Christians talk, when they want to get married, their parents made them feel as if they were being slightly immoral. You know, why don't you just live together like everybody else? It's irresponsible, this. You're too young. And the link between childbirth and marriage has been so degraded that in the United Kingdom as a whole in 2013, more children were born outside of wedlock than inside. People of the same sex over in the mainland can get married. And anyway, we're not sure anymore what sex is, male and female, are we? Church-going people are shifting on these issues as well, some of us here. We, our head's still in the right place, but our heart, it's shifting, it's being pulled. We're, we're not so sure anymore. I mean, look at these data from an Evangelical Alliance survey, the, the London Evangelical Alliance survey. Um, sexual in, amongst young people between the ages of 18 and 34, okay, Sexual intercourse outside of marriage is always wrong, right? 
Only 70% think that of young evangelicals who go to church at least once a month. Um, Homosexual activity is always wrong, right? No, less than 50% think that homosexuality is always wrong. And people are sometimes willing to say in a survey what they'll never say to you in, in, in church. Because hearts shift before heads and hearts are... Underway. Now, now, we shouldn't be surprised that this is taking place, of course, amongst our young people, especially because for several years Christians have behaved like rabbits caught in the headlights, particularly Christian leaders. We don't know what to say. They don't know what to say. We seem to be hoping that if, the, if we keep our heads down long enough, the whole sort of wretched business will some, somehow go away. But it won't. It just keeps on coming. As like King Canute, we sit hoping the waves will one day turn back. So here's the question I want to ask you this morning. This thing, this thing called the sexual revolution that overturned the old ideas about sex so comprehensively and put them all in the melting pot. What gives this revolution such power? My central purpose in this seminar is to answer that question. As the, as the sexual revolution, well, over, it's continuing to unfold around us. As that continues, what is the secret of its power? Now, there are many factors involved. We had a sociologist, he'd look at it through one lens... An epidemiologist would look at through it an, a, another, a social... There, there are different ways, but, but, but I want to draw your attention to, to what I think are the two big cultural factors that drive this revolution and give it its power. There are two things. They are it, its compelling moral vision, first, and secondly, its inspiring new ideas. Let's look at those, shall we? compelling moral vision friends this is what's caught us more off guard than anything else you see when it comes to questions of morality Christians we're kind of used to occupying the high ground aren't we the moral high ground and um, it wasn't difficult in the old days to denounce immorality and to point to the evils of pornography and and broken homes and sleeping around because it kind of fed into a broad public moral consensus about sexual norms. I mean, people didn't follow it in their private lives so much, but, but at a public level, that was the consensus. And we coasted on that public consensus so when the revolution came along this time we thought we thought it would be business as usual we we expected to be able to portray our opponents as moral anarchists bent on depravity but far from unveiling a dantian nightmare of debauchery the revolution cast an inspirational vision of Compassion and fairness and freedom and equality. And those words dance in our culture today. And it cast us, you and me, as the degenerates 
and the hypocrites and the judgmentalists. And for the first time in centuries, Christians, you are having to come to terms with the reality that today it's you who are viewed as immoral. Let me give you an example. Take this, a gay pride event. Big, biggest gay pride event just took place in Brighton. I think you'll be a gay pride event coming up here. Now, on the face of it, when, when you see images like this, and I hope some of you can see them, um, for Christians, when we get images like this, we think it is business as usual, you see? We, we, we wrinkle up our noses. What else do we do? We talk about AIDS. Um, and, oh, we hold another seminar on pornography, because that's all we ever do about sex in our churches. But people aren't listening to that kind of language anymore. Today, images like this are conveying moral virtue. You need to understand this. They convey virtue. And you say, what virtue is there in, in that? It's the virtue of being real, of being honest, of being authentic and true to who you are. The virtue of saying, you people continuing your hypocritical shams. You bring your children up in shame, like you were brought up in shame. This huge thing, our, our sexuality, that determines who you'll be sleeping with for the next 25 years. You never talked about it as teenagers. This thing called marriage. You, you didn't have any theology of it that excited your young people's imagination that set their hearts on fire, that here was something good that God had given? Well, you, you stay under your hypocritical world if you want. But this is who I am. That's, do you see the moral virtue? Do you see the moral force in that? That the morality of authenticity, of honesty, just being straight about what you feel. And biblical Christians, we just don't seem to have a vocabulary, a moral vocabulary, that, that can deal with, the, with these new words of fairness and passion and equality. We're used to talking about bi biblical principles and what the Bible says and what God's laws are and um, about what we've always done as a church and what we've done down through the centuries and something about marriage being something to do with Christ and the church, what a mouthful that is. It never sounds quite right. And it just doesn't connect with our culture. Because people don't care what the Bible says. If what the Bible does and says seems to be oppressing the little people, like my lovely gay friend. So first, the, the, the power of the revolution is connected with its moral vision second it's expiring sorry expiring inspiring new ideas and and we've only got time to focus on just one of them but i think it's probably the most important it's the doctrine of radical individualism radical individualism and we brought that doctrine that the revolution brought us as a culture, hook, line, and, and sinker. Well, what's individualism, first of all? 
In a nutshell, individualism is about the value of thinking for yourself versus what you're being told by other people. The value of thinking for yourself over and against what you learn from elsewhere, from culture, from what other people tell you, from authority figures. Now, obviously, you're thinking, well, it's good to think for yourself. Many of today's civic freedoms and privileges are rooted in ideas about the authority and the dignity of the individual. And those ideas, in turn, are rooted in biblical ideas of humans, male and female, equally made in the image and glory of God. God cares about the individuals, especially those who suffer oppression and injustice. And he calls us to fight on their behalf. So, okay, so that's individualism. So what's the difference about today's individualism? What I'm calling radical individualism. Well, previously, individualism had been about striking the right balance between individual thought and reason on the one hand and external authorities and the wisdom of tradition on the other. There was an interplay between these two things. You think for yourself, but, but also tap into the wisdom of the ages as you do that. Now today, radical individualism, that balance tilts decisively in favour of the individual, me. And it, it, it's a way of looking at life that elevates the authority and the importance of the individual over and above every other authority and wisdom. That's why I call it radical. And it's no more influential than in the sphere of personal identity. Personal identity. Today, you see, when faced with the question, who am I? I'm urged to look within myself, to, to, to find the answer in you. you. You say who you are. Look, look within. Personal meaning is discovered not, not in terms of what you've inherited and where you sit in culture and the people you relate to. It, it's found by looking within. You, you decide. And if reality out there doesn't, doesn't fall into line with what you find within then de redefine reality. Don't define what's within, because it's, it's what's within that is God. Let me give a couple of brief examples. We're skating over some big issues here, but according to the New York Times, 2015 was the year we obsessed about identity. And they gave a number of examples, and one of them was um, in December 2015, a transgender father of... Seven children, here's a picture of him, reportedly left his wife and family in Toronto, left his wife and seven children, to start a new life as a six-year-old girl. A few months earlier, another example, Rachel Dolezal, you may have heard of her, 37-year-old white civil rights activist, was accused by her parents of falsely portraying herself as black. She's masquerading, they said. This is our daughter. She wasn't born looking like that. She makes herself appear like that. Now, Rachel Dolezal admitted that what they said was true, but she was unrepentant. She continued to insist, and this is her words, I still 
identify as black. Now, do you see the authority of the individual over reality? And if reality doesn't fit, you say who you are. Now, these are extreme examples. And look, I, I, I haven't put them up to, to in any way mock or demean the individuals involved. We don't know their stories. We don't know what's going on in detail. Neither am I making comment on the small number of transgender individuals who experience real pain and dissonance in their experience of being male or female. I'm, I'm not either getting into that big area right now. But I am concerned about the much broader cultural trend that makes the phrase I identify as a defining feature of our age almost. So returning to our question, what's the secret of the revolution's cultural power? It's found, we've suggested, in its moral vision and in its ideology of radical individualism. And what we see out there in culture as these two big cultural developments converge and interact together, they create inspiring human dramas, like the Magdalene Sisters, which is about the triumph of the individual human spirit over oppressive, heartless, judgmental religion. You. About courageous women having the guts and the dignity and the womanhood to find their voice, recover their dignity, and exercise their authority over the straight-jacketing oppression, tradition, religion. What a great story, isn't it? Um, and, and these are the core elements of, of the revolution's narrative of freedom. It... You've got to understand that the sexual revolution isn't held in the popular imagination out there as a list of facts. It's not a list of facts. It's a story. It's a story about the freeing of the human spirit to be itself, to be fulfilled, and to, to throw off oppression. And you've got to admit, it's quite a good one, isn't it? And it's, it's repeated over and over in rom-coms and sitcoms, in Will and Grace, and in a thousand different shows, as it dances in our imagination and captures our heart, which is saying, yes, yes. And in response, the Christian church often deploy complicated arguments, or we list the deviances or the diseases, or we put on another pornography seminar. Simply it doesn't work. People know what we're against. What I want to know, friends, is what are we for? What are we for? And that's the challenge. And we've tried to understand the source of the revolution's power. We're driven on to the next question, aren't we? Well, if, if, if that's the source of its power, well, what is our story? How, what, do, what do we have that's, that's even begins to be capable of resisting the power of that narrative, its appeal to the human spirit. What's our vision? I have to
to say sometimes when we do flush some of our church leaders, particularly the Church of England bishops at times, when, when they are flushed out to say something, say about marriage even, what they produce reads more like the terms and conditions of a software upgrade than, than a vision of human flourishing. And people don't get it. So what are we for? Well, I want to suggest that we've got to be taught for two things. We've got to make a better critique than so far. And then we've got to tell a better story with a better vision. Well, a better critique, what does that look like? Well, I suggest that a better critique of the sexual revolution. Do you think we're making a very good job of it so far, by the way? Making a critique of the sex. Do you think the way we engage with this in the public square is all that compelling? Or I, I actually look over here with some envy, to be honest. At I, I think, say, Peter Linus, when I see what, how he comes over on, on television, I think, wow, I'd love some, some communicators like that over, over, over the other side. Because we often come across as a bit hard judgmental, knowing what we're against but not really what we're for. And suddenly we're talking about religious freedom. And I have to say, I think our, our culture will be forgiven for saying, I think suddenly you're interested in religious freedom because the only freedom you're really interested in is your own. Your own freedom. And we sound a bit as if we're just selfish. And we, we haven't really got anything that, that's, that's about how to be truly human. So I think you need to start with ourselves, our critique. We need to own up. We've got to come clean. The moral vision and the ideology of the sexual revolution conquered the popular imagination because for decades we didn't have much to put in its place, did we? In the 60s, the sexual revolution, it spoke truth to our cultural power. We did bring our kids, and still do, up in shame as to what their bodies, their sexuality, this longing about what quick dreams and erections and orgasms and all of those things are for in the kingdom of God. Well, we know it's something to do with, we've got it firmly located in the fall, but where does it fit in redemption? No, we, we don't, we don't, somehow don't have a theology or a narrative about that. We have sometimes been oppressive and judgmental. And many of us have found it hard to be honest about our sexual selves. So when someone comes along and says, well, it's about being honest, they've got a good point. We need to be honest about ourselves if we're going to grow. You can't grow if you don't know what's there, if you're not what you're dealing with. So let's respond. That I suggest the sexual revolution, our first part of our critique is of you and me. Let's respond with humility. Where we've been bigoted, and judgmental, and condemn sexual sins whilst indulging our own greed and pride. Let's repent, really, and ask God's forgiveness. Where the sexual revolution forces us to face up to some of the uncomfortable truths about us, our hearts, our hypocrisy, our churches, our failures, the way we leave our young people. Let's say thank you to it, and mean it. 
But then second, having owned up to our failed promises, maybe we can turn to the sexual revolution and interrogate some of its promises. In other words, our critique of the sexual revolution shouldn't be on the basis of of what we think. Let's critique it on the basis of what it promised. Has it delivered the, the equality, the fairness, the freedom that it promised? Isn't that a better place to start? Let, let's get alongside our culture and say, well, we messed up as well, and we failed on our promises, but is it okay if we look at some of your promises now with a hard head and objectively and, and just say, how things going? I mean, one of the things, surely, that the sexual revolution, I'm a 60s kid, I remember, it promised more sex, and it certainly seemed to be promising better sex. So let's start there. How's that one going? Five decades later. If you buy a book by Professor Spiegelhalter, which I had a name like that, Harrison, it's so boring, isn't it? Spiegelhalter. Of the University of Oxford, prof of statistics, he's written a book called Sex by Numbers, and he's pulled together a lot of the evidence. One of the things he looks at is the frequency of having sex. Um, and uh, here it is. In 16 to 44-year-olds, as we all know, once you reach 44, we'll stop having sex. So we're just looking at this, at this one. Okay. So this is the median frequency of having sex in the last four weeks. How many times have you had sex in the last four? I'm not asking, by the way. I'm just... (laughs) Women over here on the left, men on the right. You can see that in 1990... The median was round about five. In 2000, it was round about four. In 2010, it was round about three. Spiegelhalter says, now you should never do this statistician, but if you extend that graph down, nobody's having any sex at all by the year 2040. Now, I sometimes doubt very much that that will be true, but, but this is a big, a big fact, my friends. I've seen three new, one in the Washington Post, one in, I think, the Guardian, three articles on this issue. Why are we having less sex? And there's lots of theories about it, but whatever the reason, the sexual revolution does not seem to be developing or producing a a culture in, in which our sense of sexuality is flourishing. In fact, the armies of agony ants that multiply also backup data showing that we're more worried about our sex life. We're having it less. We're also more worried about them. And, and they're certainly not as rewarding as is promised. So, so I'd suggest to you that, that the sexual revolution is failing in one of its boldest aspirations to make sex better. It's not. But I want to focus attention on, on kids. Why kids? Why am I going to talk for the next 10 minutes about kids? Because, friends, it's they who have paid the price of our adult freedoms. The revolution may have brought equality, justice and freedom for us. It's brought inequality, injustice and forms of emotional captivity for them. What do I mean? Simply this, marriage, 
having a mum and a dad bound together in a promise of lifelong fidelity. Marriage. The gift of Christian marriage. Having a mum and dad. Let's repeat it. Strange words nowadays. Having a mum and dad bound together for life in lifelong fidelity is good for kids. They love it. They prosper overall in this culture of marriage. I know a little boy close to me adopted and and you know so many kids who are fostered and adopted how do they develop attachment it's a big issue isn't it as they're shipped around from pillar to post nobody wants them imagine if you go home to your room tonight and it's not the same room in fact, your house is different, but it's still got your number on, and it's still got your name in it, but it's all a different house. You say, what's going on here? I didn't know this was going to happen. And then that's, you, you settle into it again for a few weeks, and then you go shopping, you come home, you're in a different house now. You think, what's going on? There's no stability in my life. I can't make any predictions. I can't find where I left my wallet now, and I've got to look where, what the drawers are. Everything's in a different place. Now imagine if you're an a year-old kid or a six-month-year-old trying to build a picture of what life's like and you come home, she's not there anymore. Or he's not there anymore, more likely. But there are new faces. And I'm just getting used to them and then they're yanked out of my life and I don't understand why and I've got another face now smiling at me. Another face is round the back smiling. And can you imagine how anxious it would make you if you're not sure whether your house is going to be there tonight? How anxious will it make her or him when they don't know whether dad's going to be there tonight? When they're trying to construct a way of being in the world that, that gives them some security, some way of trusting the world so that they can live. Most of us take this for granted because we had mums and dads who stuck together. Now, let's, let's say some individual marriages I know are very bad for children. I've spent a lifetime exposed to some of them. And some individual non-traditional families, blended families, adopted same-sex parents, some can be very good for kids. Families come in all shapes and sizes today. And if you're a single mum here, for example, doing a great job, then... God loves that. So this isn't to undermine or diminish anybody. But we mustn't let that prevent us acknowledging and saying, and it, it, yeah, it takes a bit of courage today, that in the round, on average, in the big picture, children, their welfare is best served by a culture that values secure homes provided by two biological parents committed to each other for life. I mean, look at these, this summary here from a joint report of Princeton University and the Brookings Institute, a secular think tank. And they surveyed the evidence. And look, the bottom line is this. Reams of social science and medical research convincingly show that children who are raised by their married Biological parents enjoy better physical, cognitive, and emotional outcomes on average than children who are raised in other circumstances. On that, the word there is 
on average, okay? Before you say, well, I know a wonderful single mum should do a much better job than many parents I know, on average, okay? In the big picture. But friends, the average, raising the life chances for the most kids in a culture that values marriages is God-given because he knows that when parents stick together for the kids they brought into the world, they flourish on average. And of course, what's happened with the sexual revolution, we've seen marriage collapse. Through the 60s, divorce multiplied sixfold. 42% divorces will end. 42% of marriages still end in divorces. But actually, the, the actual number of divorces is falling off, the, 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 or it's plateaued off, rather. I normally have lots of data on this. And at Keswick, we did five seminars, and I'm trying to cram all this in. But, but, but we, we did um, uh, the actual number of divorces leveling off. So you think, oh, what's the problem then? It's leveling off. It's not so bad. It's because not so many people are getting married anymore. That's why there are fewer divorces. Because cohabitation is the new norm. And one thing we do know is that cohabitation is much less stable if, if, if you have a kid, mar- some nice research from the Marriage Foundation, which you can pull up at, in the references at the end, shows that if you were unlucky enough that your parents weren't married when you were born, and, you, and they never get married, their chance of being together 10 years later, on average, are just a half, 50%. In fact, the divorce data and the cohabitation data put together mean that around a half of kids reach the age of 16 now with two parents in the home. Rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Oh, half kids. It's a tragedy. Friends, we've, we've forgotten how great a revolution Christianity wrought in Greek and Roman culture in the way it, it thought about kids. We kind of take it for granted that kids are important. This was a Christian value that Christians brought to Greco-Roman culture. Remember, it was heavily hierarchical. Kids were at the bottom of the pile. Expositio, if, if, if your kid, particularly if she was a girl, didn't fit, you could leave her out where someone may pick her up. She'll end up in being trafficked. And uh, we've forgotten just what a big revolution the Christians brought to that culture. Christians who remembered that Jesus placed children at the very center of the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember the disciples almost defaulted to the culture? When, when people bring kids, they say, oh, no, kids are at the bottom of the heap. Jesus is interested in people at the bottom of the heap. Jesus clears away to him and says, bring the children to me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And the Christians, the early Christians, remembered that. And they remembered how the anger of the Old Testament God burned against the child sacrifices. And they remembered that in the very last book of the Old Testament, the vision is cast that the, the hearts of the fathers will be turned toward their children. And Christians brought these values of childhood and marriage and the church working together, single and married people, in the interest and welfare of children to that culture and transformed it. Which 
brings me to the last few words. We've owned up to our own failures. We've recognized the failed promises of the sexual revolution. What's our vision? What's our vision? Well, it's a vision for kids. I'd, I'd suggest keep, keep, keep that on the side after, after we looked at that because the great Christian social reformers, Wesley Booth, Wilberforce, Bernardo, always had a heart for kids. It's our saviors. It's the way we think as Christians. So as we look at the sexual revolution, we should be saying, where's the equality and the compassion and the justice for kids? You want to talk equality, compassion, inclusion, justice. Let's talk about that. But let I, I hear, let, we can talk about it for adults. There's some tough issues there. Let's talk about it for kids as well. Because this revolution, in some of its outworking, is heaping structural injustices and inequality on the most vulnerable people in our society. Kids. And marriage is collapsing most amongst the poorest. It's holding up pretty well amongst the people who, who write in the newspapers for the rest of us and who rubbish marriage. Oddly enough, rates of marriage amongst the upper classes staying pretty robust. Do they know something that, that somehow the poor aren't allowed to know? And so having made that critique and, and having found a place perhaps where we can begin to connect with our culture in terms of its values. They're not its values, they're God's values. Equality, justice for the poor, for the children, for the outcast, for the stranger among you. These are the values of our God. Equality, justice, compassion. Now we connect it, we start on behalf of the kids. And I suggest that, that that's part of our, our critique. But Lastly, what is our better vision? Do we have a better vision that we can cast for our culture? And if, if we do, what does it look like? I, I gave this seminar, I think it was actually here in Northern Ireland once, and uh, somebody put up their hand and he said, well, I hope what's coming, what next, I hope what's coming next is good because <laughs> I'm really upset by what I've heard so far uh, because I, I think this vision... The, of the sexual revolution, it's captured my heart. It's where I sit, it's where I am. I don't know what to say to it. I'm not sure it is all that good, but, but I want to stir you up to begin to think for yourself, what's our vision? How can we begin to cast a vision that wins hearts as well as minds? How can we begin to embody and live out a way of life that'll be good news again to our culture? That's the question, isn't it? Well, I, I think... Our, our better vision has three bits to it at least. And each one of these we could spend an hour on. I think it has a better vision of human identity. We're a culture, remember, obsessed with identity. So we're right on target here in terms of where people are at. You see, in the Christian story, we don't work out our identity for ourselves. It isn't something you discover within. We don't have to build our whole identity on our part identity like our nationality or our gender or our sexuality. As Christians, we, we, don't, we don't do that. Our identity is something given to us. Given. 
Look, when John begins his gospel with the awesome words, in the beginning, basically two things happen after that. Do you remember? First, we're told that the creator of the universe, in the beginning, what came next? The creator of the universe revealed himself to us. The word became flesh dwelt among us we we don't have to figure it out for ourselves we don't scratch our heads and look out and say what sense can i make of this he revealed himself who he is in the face and the glory of his son that's a remarkable thing in itself that's good news but then then something in today's term perhaps even more interesting if the ever could be he he not only revealed who he is the other thing was he revealed who we are to as many as received him to them gave he the the power the authority to be called children of god image bearers now i hope you can begin to see friends how how this is actually a better vision Uh, Waking up in the morning with the question, who am I today? It's not a blessing. It's a burden. Who am I today? We live in a culture that says, you've got to look within yourself. What what do I find within myself this morning? Because the feelings, they're different from the ones I found yesterday. So am I something different today? Actually, my culture is disingenuous because it says, no, we want you to be who you are as long as who you are fits what we think today. Isn't it? If you say, um, if you said a century ago, uh, I look within myself and you're a girl and you're an intelligent, fine, young woman with loads of gifts. And you say, I look within myself. I think I find, um, I think I find, uh, I'd love to run something. I see those railways being developed. I think I could run one of those. The culture at the time would say, well, nice idea, but... um, You've got kids in the home. You know, that, that's what we tell you to do, you see. And our culture says, we got rid of all that, you see. Um, you just be yourself. If you want to drive trains or if you want to run railways, you do that. No, no, it doesn't do that at all. If that same girl looks within herself and she's bright and intelligent and loaded with gifts and she says, there's nothing I want to do more than to have kids and to build a wonderful home which has loose borders that bring in others in our church. That's, it's called a household in the Bible. And I want to be a Lydia type person with a place with hospitality and a husband to share that with me. If she looks into her heart and says that, and she's 21 and in the middle of her university degree, our culture says, ah, 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 you know, that, that does not fit. So you can be yourself as long as it fits. It is a a fallacy that we can ever just be ourselves independent of our culture. And friends, the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to make it all up every day. He has spoken and he's revealed that you and I are image bearers made in the image of God himself. And everything flows from that. We work out and we discipline And we school and form our feelings in the light of that reality first. That is the blueprint for human flourishing. People in the image of God. 
Then second, we have a vision of how to love well. What do I mean by that? I'd love to spend a lot of time on this, but we're called to love as his image bearers, how he loves. I'm going to make up how you love. Love like he loves. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means lots of things because he's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And some of us are called to be, all of us are called to be those kinds of friends. He's a servant who serves others. But then as we know, because most of us here have benefited from this love, he has a, a very intimate kind of love as well. Very special kind of love that's, that's invasive, that, that's so intimate that only you and he are involved, that, that creates a union between you and him. And what we know from the way he's revealed himself, his, his image, is that when he loves like that, in that really intimate union, kind of your mind way, it's always faithful. Always. He doesn't do one night stands. He won't look at you and declare his love and he's off with his secretary two years later. What did we learn this morning? It's a rugged love for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, and death will never even part this love. Now, we are called to love like that. That means that some of us, when we're called to that kind of intimacy with a person and we discover it, and we enter inside one another in a rich union of delight in each other, the only way we must do that, the only way is the way he does it, faithfully, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. And so you see, when you go to a wedding, when you look around at a couple here who've kept those marriage vows, what you see is the gospel put on display because they bear witness to the kind of love that God has, which is always giving an intimate. It's not a list of facts. It's a person who wants to be bound to you forever, but always faithfully. That couple there. They put that gospel on display. They bear witness to his faithfulness. So the husband in, in that relationship, when he, when he says, I won't sleep with my, I will be faithful to my wife, witnesses to God's love, the kind of love he has. And you say, what about the single person? The single person who also stays faithful to God's claim and call on him or her also bears witness to that love. They're not going to have a one-night stand because he doesn't do that. They're not going to take this opportunity to be really intimate with somebody lightly because he doesn't do that. Do you see that, friends? Both the single person and the married bear witness to the love of God in their bodies. A woman came up to me, I said this, and she was in tears and she said, I'm 40 and I could have had sex at work, boy. Over and over, I could, but I've kept myself. And if I'm honest, I, w I want to be married, she said. But, but what, what this gives me, of what you've helped me to see, is that I'm not asexual because I'm not having sex. I'm doing something with my sexuality. I'm putting the love of God on display to the world. It's always faithful. It's always in covenant. It's always for better, for worse. 
And you've told me that in my body, my body, my sexual body bears witness to that truth. So don't just look at the married couples in, in your church, friends. This is about imagination. Look at some of the single people. They're wonderful, wonderful icons of the kind of love that God has. If they're being faithful, if they're being chaste, if they're holding their bodies, something that's noble. Boy, is that hard in today's culture. So, second, we have a vision of how to love. Third, we have a, a vision about how human beings flourish. We, you know, we feel that in the end, in the round, we flourish when we're faithful to our design. And we hear our culture when it says, well, uh, you've got to look in, inside yourself. You, you've got to go with what you discover there. And we say, we, don't, we, we do look inside ourselves. We, God doesn't, he wants us on our knees, honest and real before him. That's called the gospel. But we say, more. I tell you, he, he calls us to more. He calls us to, to flourish in his image, as his image bearers, loving and living as he calls us to be. And um, we sacrifice ourselves for the common good. The common good being building a strong community of strong marriages, strong families, wonderful single people linked into families who themselves bear witness to and support marriage by their own chastity and by what the gifts they bring to that community and do stuff that married people can't do. That's our vision that we build together. Gosh, and I know there are lots of what about questions hanging in the air now, so I'm going to finish. But um, I just want to say this. Finally, we need to, to wrap up. I said that the gospel sets before us a blueprint of what it means to love and flourish as divine image bearers. I've set before you a bit of a, a blueprint. The blueprint is that we're made in the image of God who flourish when we live faithfully with the way he's made us. Of course, that blueprint, you know, we all, it's all there and then we build the houses of our lives, as we look at the blueprint, what a mess those buildings are. Anyone here got, got the finished article? If so, come and see me. I'm a psychiatrist. <laughs> None of us are finished. Some of us are hardly barely begun buildings as we aspire to that blueprint. It's a work in progress, isn't it? So now's the time to throw open our doors in our churches and say whosoever will may come please come if you're in same-sex relationship whatever size shape your family is whether you're a three family or a two or a blended family or whatever and friends they're going to be coming in all shapes and sizes that we can't imagine yet if the revolution continues to unravel anything can happen Throw open the doors. I was brought, we want that word inclusion back, okay? And our message is we will serve you. If you're a same-sex couple, you adopted a disabled little boy, please let us help you with him. We will serve you. We're going to have to get our head around how this fits with our own values, but we want to serve you because this is a place where we want to serve, to love, regardless of background, family, where you come from, sexuality, anything else. It's called 
It's called the gospel. We ask you only one thing. Don't ask us to give up our blueprint. Because we can't and we won't. Because it's our identity. Our identity. You talk about identity. Our identity is that we are Christians. Made in the image of God. We have to. We have to hold that blueprint up and say this is how we must live. And if you, if you want to join in our, our gospel. If you want to, to become one of us. Then that's the blueprint you've got to aspire to as well. It's okay. We're all broken in different ways. But that we, we cannot surrender our blueprint. Because it's life for the world. Can you believe that again? Culture so powerful. Friends, maybe you're thinking that this revival of the Christian moral vision lived out in churches. You say, have you been to my church? You know, um, it's a bit of a pipe dream. We've been here before, 2,000 years ago, after Jesus' ascension, didn't it? It looks as if he'd left his church in the hands of no hopers. And yet the belief that Jesus of Nazareth had been raised from the dead inspired that little band of men and women to create a culture that was just so attractive to pagans. The way they loved their kids, the way they treated their women, the way they set free their slaves, the way they looked out for one another and welcomed one another and the slaves and the poor. A culture so attractive to pagans and to Romans and Greeks, that by the end of the 4th century, an entire empire stood on the verge of faith. We shall need to pray. We'll need to think hard. There are lots of questions. What about questions? I know that you're dying to, to ask. But for the sake of the gospel, for the life of the world, to bring justice and equality to our kids... What I suggest, friends, is that the biblical moral vision, this vision that God has given, we don't make up, God has given, is life for the world. And that's the vision. Well, you can read that over again there. If you go to this website, humbly called glynharrison.com, go to the resources page. At the bottom of the resources, you'll see... A slide PDF you can download that's got, um, it'll just say uh, New Horizons. Just click on it. It'll give you both the link to that article. It'll give you, oh, by the way, there's a book coming out, A Better Story by Glyn Harrison. That's funny. Um, at the end of this year or in January for my VP, um, God, Sex and Human Flourishing. And there'll also be some resources their references to what I've just said. Can I just pray with us? But then I'm, I think I've, I really ought to have some questions, but I know Paul's going to say, or comments or pushback, and Paul's going to say, sorry, you cannot do that. Um, so uh, um, shall I pray, Paul? Lord, forgive me for uh, leaving so little time for us to think together. But you know what a wonderful vision this is excite us with it, win our hearts with it. Again, Lord, we pray that you'll especially win a new generation of young people who just aren't our, our own Christian young people who aren't willing to put up with the compromises of some of us. 
and who want to learn over again what it is to be sexual in the image of God. Bless them, Lord. And bless us, we pray. Amen.